your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. James, we got to talk about the White Sox, but first let's preview what's on tap on this episode. Burt Granger of D1 Baseball will join us not only to talk about the draft, but organizational philosophy. I love using that phrase because the White Sox are unlike any other team, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But Burke is awesome in covering Midwest talent and also how it relates to where the White Sox stand at pick number 26. July 17th is the amateur draft. James, as well as Josh Nelson over at Sox Machine, our partners will be hosting live draft Twitter spaces during the draft. So be sure to be a part of that on July 17th. But also there's so much coverage that we're doing on futuresox.com as well as SoxMachine.com on the Major League Baseball Amateur Draft. So please go and check out some of the names that one Burt Granger has listed in this episode later on, but also some of the names that James Fox has been hearing that's sort of uh, attached to the White Sox potentially at 26. So a lot to get to as you're following this podcast every Tuesday. Thanks so much for your support. We will have that for you in the back pocket. James, let's let's get into the big league club because we can't ignore what's going on on the bench at Guaranteed Rate Field. This has gotten to the point where, look, as fans, we understand the significance of the hire of Tony La Russa. Jerry Reinsdorf undermined Rickon, who built a roster that was supposed to be deployed a certain way. And he had a plan of how he wanted his manager to manage the roster. We clearly haven't seen it managed to its fullest potential going back to his first season in 2021. Now we're seeing a guy deliberately asserting his authority and his baseball instincts over what is actually correct. Over and over again, we're seeing handedness in the lineup, despite the fact that the players are bad. We're seeing Tony La Russa prefer to play veterans over a guy that they just called up, added to the 40-man, added to the active roster with the intention, at least in the front office, I can assume, in Lenin Sosa, he was going to play because you're not going to add him to the active roster after Danny Mendix torn ACL to just have him sit on the bench. What the hell is going on with the Chicago White Sox and their willingness to just allow all of this to happen in the dugout? I mean, that is priority number one, is Tony La Russa. What the hell is this? Yeah, so, you know, this is why I like look forward to the future Sox podcast so we don't have to talk about this godforsaken baseball team that we love. But yeah, it's been rough. I mean, one thing I do want to point out is like, obviously, like, I don't think anybody thinks that this is like all Tony LaRusso's fault. Like, there's a lot of injuries. There's a lot of other stuff going on. But he's not the right guy for this job. And like, you know, I always get like, oh, blaming it on Tony again. It's like, I'm not blaming anything on Tony. He's just not very good. And he doesn't manage the way that other managers on other good teams manage, whether that's the bullpen and bringing guys in in stupid spots and saying like, you know, stuff like, oh, like Joe Kelly gets the eighth, what? but like you get to the eighth and then it's six to one. So it doesn't even matter. And worrying about pitcher wins, you know, you're getting us, you're getting a starter into the sixth and keeping him there so he can get his win. And the over-reliance on bad utility guys and starting lefties when righties are pitching and just like, it's, it's just bad. And it, you know, it's organizational negligence, but like, it's not because the owner hired this guy. This is not the front office's guy. So it's like, there's just, it just seems like there's always a disconnect. You know, I'm sure you've worked places where it's, where it's like this, where it's just like people are not on the same page. So like, you know, decisions don't get made because it's like, eh, whatever. Like, I didn't create this mess, but it's like the fans right now that are suffering. And you could you could remove the front office. And I've had a lot of discussions on Twitter about how unrealistic that is. But like, the, the one thing you can do is change managers. And maybe it doesn't work, but it's clearly not working like the way they're handling it. And And it's just like, 
frustrating decision after frustrating decision. And like I, I said, even earlier in the year, like if they were hitting, like a lot of this stuff would be masked. And I still kind of believe that. I think the fact that they can't hit is a huge problem. And like the injuries on top of it is basically what has them like five games out of the central. But I mean, this was supposed to be a tactical advantage in the dugout when you hire like a hall of fame manager. And and they, they just have not had that. Oh my God. I just, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. James, you mentioned it. It's not all Tony Larusa because the players are underperforming, but step one to moving forward is getting him out of the dugout, out of the position in which he has responsibility over the lineup. The White Sox called up Lenin Sosa to play. What does he do? He doesn't play him. And that's Larusa. And then when the White Sox make a stink about Larusa not playing Lenin Sosa, he bats him lead off and says, fine, you want me to play Lenin Sosa? I'll play him and I'll give him all the at-bats. This is what you want? Fine. And it's that kind of discourse that I feel like is happening just from the outside looking in. I'm not in the dugout. I'm not in the front office. I don't hear any of these conversations. But just by the way Larusa carries himself in pregame discussions to the media, postgame It doesn't make any lick of sense. And here's an example. On Friday evening, it was the second day in which Lenin Sosa was up with the club. He was asked about why Lenin was not in the lineup again in the second day in a row after his call-up. This is Tony LaRusso's answer. Right now, here's a quote. He's up here temporarily right now, right? To fill in. He could go nuts, yar, and force himself into the lineup. I don't know how many opportunities he's going to get. The thing to watch closely is today with Leary. Those are his at-bats. If he can repeat that, referring to Garcia going one for three with a walk last night, he'll be productive. Josh Harrison, when he plays, he sparks us. I don't want to discourage Sosa, but he may get three hits tomorrow and not play Sunday. So we'll see. I hope he does, though. James, this is the guy making every decision on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's no way... That the front office decided, like, let's call up Lenin Sosa from double A and just, like, use him as a fill-in player. And I, and I know, like, that's been the company line or whatever. I've, I heard James Feagan kind of say it today on Hit and Run, too. It, it's just, like, I just, like, don't believe it. Like, Lenin Sosa's here to play second base to see if he can provide a spark. And if he hits, then he stays. Like, it's pretty easy. But... Like, Tony doesn't do that. He didn't do it with Vaughn. He never did it in St. Louis. He makes young players, like, earn their way onto the team, and he just plays bad veterans because that's what he was. That's all this is. So, you know, like, if if that were the case, like, if you just needed a fill-in, Gilbert Sanchez makes more sense. Even, like, Zach Remillard or whoever, like, add an infielder to the 40-man, bring them up, they can fill in for the weekend, if that's all this is with Yohan Mankata, you know, returning Tuesday, supposedly. This, none of this makes any sense. And then, you know, fans on Twitter, like, want to see Lenin Sosa right away, because, like, rightfully so. Like, they want something to latch onto. And, you know, this kid earned the opportunity, and then he's not playing, and people are mad, and, you know, they have the right to be mad, because it's ridiculous. But you know, it's it, it's not really unexpected because this is what Tony Larusa has done forever because he's smarter than us and he wants us to know it. Exactly, he's been doing it forever, and it's getting worse because he works on instinct. He doesn't work on rationale in terms of like using and applying the correct method or looking ahead two to three batters or getting a guy up early enough to be able to relieve his starter at a, an appropriate point in the ball game. I mean, these are just managerial things. One-on-one, man. We're going back to Matt Nagy's one-on-one system. These are things that I could do from home playing MLB the show and be like, well, lefty's coming up in two batters or my starter's at 89 pitches or, for example, two games against Baltimore. And we're going to move on from this topic. This is just airing out our frustrations about uh, Tony LaRussa and all this other stuff that's impacting the outcomes of White Sox baseball. Again, let's reiterate, Rick Hahn believed this was a World Series contender. But on Friday evening, I was at the ball game watching Michael Kopech battle. And he finished six innings. He was around 85 pitches. He had to work to get out of the sixth. And you could tell that Hey man, like, you know, I'm giving it everything. And he may be at 85 pitches, but it looked like he was, he was done. And just by the body language, the stuff was still there, but 
You could tell a guy like him, when he's working hard, that's it. He sends him out in the seventh inning. He walks the first batter he faces, and then he's pulled. The next day, Lance Lynn starts. This is a guy two weeks, three weeks off an injury, making what, his fourth start? He's on the bump, beginning the seventh, with over 100 pitches. I don't understand the thinking other than we need him to cover innings for the bullpen, or because of pitch count, we want to rely on the start. Like, this this is like beyond 10 years ago in how to manage a bullpen and manage a rotation. I understand you got to fill innings somehow, but man, have a sense, have any sort of sense in the moment. We mentioned it too, that this isn't all Tony La Russa because the roster is completely underperforming. But step one is to get him away from the decision-making process. That's my feeling. So it's a frustrating thing that there's this dark cloud hovering over what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Not that it's going to fix anything because, James, right now this is not a postseason team. Even like when we look at it, they're closer to the Orioles than they are to, say, even Cleveland. Like Cleveland looks like they're on their way to the postseason compared to where the White Sox stand. This is just a lifeless team. They got nothing for me that suggests they can turn it around. And I know we're a month away from the deadline. That'll be very telling. But the season could be very, very much over in a month from today. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the only thing that we've been hanging on to is the fact that they're in the American League Central, right? Like, they've been horrible. They're 33 and 37. You've lost three straight to the Orioles. But they have so many division games coming up that they're, like, not out of it. And, like, part of me like almost wishes that it, it would be much easier for, for us. I feel like if they were buried, cause then you wouldn't have to pay attention anymore. Like I tongue in cheek, like tweeted that this morning and then people are like, Oh, what do you care? Like you love rooting for losses anyway, you know? So whatever, but like, no, like this is the worst. Like being around 500 is terrible because they always like give you hope that there's a chance. Right. And even like you're you're going to be like right around 5 games back like until Cleveland or Minnesota like steps on your throat and buries you you know and the, you know I think the White Sox are like hoping for their players to return and then just like magically you're going to play better and like look it should get better because they're going to get a lot of guys back but I mean with Tony in the dugout like you just there's such a small margin for error and you know, you lose on the margins and it, it's just, it's going to be really, really tough to dig out of the hole that they've, that they've dug themselves. So that gives us an opportunity to look a little bit further into the future now because some encouraging news over the last week, Colson Montgomery, uh, number one prospect in the White Sox system was promoted to Winston-Salem and he hasn't skipped a beat. Still looking very, very strong at the plate. And also, he is growing, James. Like When you look at him play and see the videos and and hear from the scouts, this is somebody who's filling into his frame, which is really exciting. A left-handed bat who plays shortstop, puts bat to ball at an efficient rate. To this point, he looks like... You know, he's not overwhelmed with some of the advanced A arms. And this is our way of just moving on from the whole big league picture because the... um, Anyway... Anyway, Colson Montgomery, and he's doing really well, James. Yeah, very promising. I mean, he, you know, he he played really well at Kannapolis despite like a hand injury too. And, you know, the calls have been out for the last week. Like, when is this guy going to get promoted? Is he a top 100 prospect? Well, I mean, we, we have answers to to both of those questions. He's in Winston-Salem, which is super promising, like in his in his first year. And like full disclosure, like he could have, he could have spent the whole year at Kannapolis and it would have been totally fine. But instead he's... 20 at Winston-Salem I would guess he closes the year there and then you know we'll see how he does but trajectory is going upward Josh Nelson shared on Twitter obviously like as of this recording and I think what we you know this episode you're listening to on Tuesday so the Sox machine their interview with Jim Callis is out already but Jim Callis kind of let us know that Colson Montgomery is one of the next guys in on MLB pipeline the way they do things is they're you know, guys graduate off the list and they have like a list of guys ready to come in. And Colson Montgomery is one of those guys. So I would say, you know, within the next week or so, he will be a top 100 prospect at MLB MLB pipeline and, you know, other publications could follow suit. So I I would think uh, the White Sox are going to universally here have a top 100 prospect for, for most people for, you know, the first time in a little while. 
proximity to the big leagues is one thing, but the skill set is another. And especially the position that he plays, Colson Montgomery, is very well deserving of top 100 status, which is awesome. James Norhe Vera is pitching in Kannapolis, which is great. And our guy Jeff Cohen got a chance to see him. And, of course, Jeff covers our AAA ball club, uh, or I should say the White Sox AAA ball club for our ball club at Future Sox. So he's seen a lot of pitching, and he was very impressed with Norhe Vera. Looks like all things are a go for who we consider absolutely the top pitching prospect in the White Sox system, but definitely a top five as well at this point. Anything that you like from what you've seen so far out of Norhe Vera in single A? Yeah, I mean, he just like he's huge. Like it's like I guess it's like one of the things that you like weren't expecting. Like when you when you see him because he's like six six, but he's like way bigger than he was. He he really does look kind of like Jose Contreras. I think the most interesting thing for me will be just how many innings he gets. And then if the White Sox try to send him to like the Arizona Fall League or somewhere to get him more innings. But I mean, yeah, he's he's uh, very promising. He's definitely one of the more promising pitching prospects in their system. You know, we talked a lot about Christian Mena too. He's in, he's in Winston-Salem after really, you know, Kannapolis was, was no challenge for him. And he kept getting these like low A hitters out on breaking ball. So I think this is basically like a test for him to get him to Winston. But ideally I think Vera moves pretty quickly too, but after the lad injury and kind of a lost season last year in the DSL, they might take their time with him too. The most important thing is that he's pitching somewhere. And last thing before we get to Burke Granger, a couple of days ago, James, or at least last week, Garrett Crochet told Scott Merkin that he's looking to be a starter next year. And we get into it later on in this podcast. But James, that I think is encouraging news. But at the same time, there's some room to be concerned because you can't just flip a switch and say, okay, Garrett Crochet, you're a part of the 2023 White Sox rotation. We're even looking past 2024, given the timeline of one, the injury, and two, he's also got to develop as a starting pitcher. So I think one of the things with him being in the bullpen last year that hurts him is just the fact that he had no inning space to begin with. You know, you often hear Chris Sale referenced and how the White Sox have had a history of doing this sort of thing where they put a guy in the bullpen and then ultimately move them to the rotation. But man, if you look back at Garrett Crochet's college career, he just doesn't have that sort of inning space. Like Chris Sale pitched three years at Florida Gulf Coast University and then, you know, was used in the pen. So it was a pretty easy transition to starting. This is going to be a tough transition. When the Sox took him 11th overall, there's no doubt in my mind that they thought that he could start. Mike Shirley said that he thought he could start. You know, Rick Hahn said similar. And then that was the 2020 season. He looked really good at the alternate site. They promoted him because, you know, why not? Like, this guy's throwing 100. He can help our big league club. And they did it. And then after that is where they made the mistake, in my opinion. And it comes back to Tony LaRussa again, right? I mean, you know, you're Tony LaRussa, like you have no interest in this left-handed arm that you've seen for the first time, like, you know, riding a bus down in Birmingham, like developing as a starter to benefit this club when you'll no longer be here. Like you want him up pitching and high leverage innings for you right now. And that's what they did in 2021. And he was really good at it. And he was going to do similar this year, even though they said they were going to try to get him some more injury, some more innings. And then he blew out. So you know, rightfully so. Garrett Crochet wants to be a starter. That'll get him paid more. He wants to start. I just, I have big reservations now as far as like whether he can do that. And if he can, like if he can do it for a White Sox team that's trying to contend at the same time. Well, James, I'm glad we got a, a lot of our frustrations off our chest here. This is very therapeutic. I hope the listeners can understand where we're coming from. And if they like what they hear, you, I'm talking directly to you now, Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, or follow us on Twitter at Future Sox. I'm at Rankin906. James is at JamesFox917. I'm sure you already do, but boy, the content over at Sox Machine is unparalleled. It's been nothing but good things, sunshine and rainbow, since we were able to partner with Sox Machine. I just wish the Big League Club was worth following again. Huh, boy. And it's crazy to say that in a window in which the White Sox expected to compete for a World Series. But here we are, pain and misery again as Sox fans. James, we have a really fun interview coming up with Burke Granger. A lot of insight on the draft. You also provide a lot of great perspective on how you feel about where the White Sox stand. So this interview is going to be very insightful. Before we go, though, James, I want to give a shout out to Oscar Colas a little bit. We see Colson Montgomery get promoted. You and I believe 
Coloss may not be in Winston-Salem for much longer. Yeah, I think he's probably next. I mean, I don't I don't have his exact line in front of me, but you know, I tweeted it and every day like we have the uh the snapshot of the system go out and he's been really really good in June. I don't I don't really know what they're waiting for, honestly, and you know, some of the guys from Birmingham could easily go to Charlotte and help there. So, you know, Tuesday what is when, you know, the new week starts in the minors. Colson was promoted midweek, which is kind of weird, but maybe similar happens with Oscar Colas. They should get him to double A. And, you know, he, he doesn't really have much left to prove in Winston-Salem as far as I'm concerned. A lot more to come here on the Future Sox podcast. Going to take a break, but when we come back, it's Burke Granger. We'll talk big league club. We'll also talk amateur draft that begins in July. Stay tuned. If you're a Patreon subscriber, no ads for you. Go to SoxMachine.com and sign up if you're not a Patreon subscriber already. It really helps us out with our products. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. When we come back, it's Burke Ranger, D1 Baseball. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Please be joined now by Burke Granger of D1 Baseball. He covers the Midwest prospects, incoming MLB draft hopefuls, as the draft is on July 17th this year. Welcome in, Burke. So good to talk to you again. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, guys. I always like talking to you. So I don't know how closely you're following the Chicago White Sox this season, the big league level. And we, when we talked to you before, you were a big fan of the Andrew Vaughn pick, and we'll get your thoughts mm-hmm. on where he's developed to this point as well. But man... We're looking at this White Sox team and we can't figure it out. Uh, what's worse? Is it watching it every day or the actual outcomes of the ball game? So they're four under 500 as we record this podcast. And it seems like on a national level, the perspective is pretty unanimous. That this is an underachieving team, one that was supposed to compete for a World Series. But so many of the decisions made on the bench this year is unjustifiable. So just wondering your opinion on the way the White Sox are structured and how you feel about Tony La Russa still managing this ball club. Yeah, so and I think I mentioned to you guys in the past, I, I grew up a White Sox fan. I'm still a White Sox fan. I try to remain as, as impartial as I can uh, as it you know dovetails into to my job of, of covering college baseball and covering draft prospects. But what when, I'm, when I get the time, I like to sit down and, and watch the White Sox, but it's, it's been certainly frustrating. I, I expected them to be a contender this year. I think that the roster, um, at least at least when you talk about the, the expected contributors, I think there's a depth issue. But I think the roster was such that, that you would expect this team to contend, especially in that division. Um, I was a little apprehensive, I think, when they hired – Tony Larusa just for the the youth on this club, and I I wasn't sure how much he would mesh with those guys, and and we heard I think last year a lot of the feedback from the the vocal leaders like Tim Anderson that hey we get along great with with Tony, but it doesn't matter how how well you're you're getting along when when the on the field product is as as poor as it's as it's been playing this year. So I I like the roster construction overall, at least you know with the starters I think. I think left-handed hitting is, is a need that they should have addressed in the in the offseason, and they didn't. I, I I wasn't on board with the the Andrew Vaughn uh, Gavin Sheets experiment in right field, and, and just you guys have pointed it out. Some of the some of the decisions have been have been troubling. You don't call a guy up for for three days and, and burn an option if you're not going to play him and give him a chance to stick up here if if you expect him to be part of your future uh, later this year or next year and subsequent years of contending. So it's certainly been frustrating to watch. Um, 
I would think under normal circumstances, then this is where a change would be made, especially after a disappointing showing against against Baltimore. I just don't know what that change is going to be. Now, I'm going to let James take the Carlos Rodon question because you brought up Lenin Sosa, and I just can't wait to ask about this decision. First of all, how significant of a rise was it for Lenin to do as well as he did in Birmingham after being in the organization since he was 17, and now he's 22, making his Major League debut? And like you mentioned, the White Sox call him up, not only add him to the 40-man, which you were essentially going to do anyway to protect him from the Rule 5, but you call this type of player up who's been outstanding in Birmingham in his first year in Birmingham, young, and yet Tony Larusa is justifying not playing him because he's a replacement. What is the thinking there, and, and wh- can you just explain the reason why you would call up a prospect like Lenin Sosa at this point of the season if we were talking about, I don't know, any other ball club? <laughs> I, I don't have a good justification for it because if you don't you simply just don't call up a guy like that and and waste an option if he has no chance to stick up uh, to stick with the major league team and and Tony Larusa I think said said as much during one of the pressers like yeah you know he's not going to play all the time when he's up and he he might go three for four and we might rest him the next day and those are just they're puzzling comments to make about a player who has outperformed expectations at the double a level this year. And then, you know, he's earned, he's earned the call up. So uh, hypothetically he's earned, he's earned the right to be here if he performs well, but when he has a, an expiration date in mind, when the, when the, your manager and perhaps the, the front office has an expiration date in mind that they know they are going to send you down to me, I think that would be disheartening for the player when you're getting your first taste, of taste of major league baseball. So I, you're asking for a justification. I don't, I don't know if there is one. I don't, I don't understand it unless you are you're truly a contender and you say this is the guy that gives us the best chance to win by helping us out and giving us depth on the bench but the white Sox are certainly struggling in that in that regard you know they're 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 not playing to the level where they need to and burning an option like this has downstream consequences as as we've seen with some of the other decisions they've made uh in the in the past 12 months or so of downstream consequences for other aspects like the draft and so on Speaking of bad decisions, uh, we we talked a little bit before the show, obviously, and brought up Carlos Rodon. It wasn't my choice, but th- this is where we are. <laughs> so as we get further into this podcast, you know, we're going to talk about the White Sox recent draft strategy. And, you know, I'm going to go back and forth with you about maybe what they should do and stuff like that. But, you know, part of that that's always puzzled me is just, you know, not offering Carlos Rodon the qualifying offer. I completely understand them not signing him. They know his history. But being so afraid of a one-year deal at $18 million, is it's just astounding to me still. And I've talked about this a lot in the past. I mean, if Carlos Rodon, if, you know, if they offer the qualifying offer and he turns it down, which you know all indications are that he would have, you're talking about adding the 80th pick and $800,000 to your bonus pool to a team that's 27th in money that they can spend for this draft. So I guess like, what are your thoughts just on that decision and just like how short-sighted it is like in nature? Yeah. I mean, that, that to me was another puzzling one, James. And I was, I was looking at that last night as I was checking out their draft, their bonus pool, and then what it could have been had they just made that qualifying honor offer. And, and so if he accepts it, boom, you got a, you got a starter at a controlled price point. Um, who's this year pitching at you know an all-star level? If he rejects it, White Sox, as you said, get the 80th pick and eight hundred thousand dollars that they're added to their bonus pool, which which would take them, I think, to like having the ninth or or eighth or ninth lowest bonus pool instead of the third lowest. So the downstream impacts of that is they had the third lowest bonus pool in this draft, right? For their first 10 rounds of picks. And when we talk about this year's draft, in my opinion, the, some of the strengths of this year's draft are the overall depth and then the high school position players. And when those two things are the strengths of the draft, you obviously want more money to play with. One for the depth, you, have, you get more picks. You have the chance to get, I think, a little more creative like they did, like they were in, in 2020, where you might take a guy under slot with your first pick and you float a guy to the second pick, yeah, to the second round, and you go over slot with that pick. You just have less options when you have less of a bo- less less money in your bonus pool. So for me, that's where it makes it a little tricky, and it, and in my opinion, it hamstrung the White Sox for this year's draft because I would be, you know, personally, I'm a little more risk averse. I think taking a high school position player is your best chance for a high risk, high reward type player. 
But when you're this far down in the bonus pool and you're still trying to contend, your window of contention is open. I would be a little bit more risk averse and, and probably more lean towards taking a college, a college bat at that level, which means you're really kind of missing an opportunity to gamble a little bit on a high school player. So that's just an example of where, in my opinion, like, like you, James, I think it was a short-sighted decision that has downstream impacts impacting other aspects of, of the player development for this club. We're talking to Burke Granger. You can follow him on Twitter at Burke Granger. So you mentioned the strength of the draft, and I'd love to get your opinion about how it relates to where the White Sox sit at 26 overall. But before we get into that, I just want to ask about the draft itself being pushed back later into the MLB calendar, which is July 17th this season. And what's interesting to me, at least uh, a new aspect of this date, is that College baseball players playing in the College World Series don't really have to worry about that whole process of being drafted and then playing for your college team and trying to win a national championship. I thought that was fascinating, but I also think about the high school players and also when these players get into the organization. I mean, short season rookie ball in Arizona for the White Sox has already started. So, you know, a lot of these small things come into play now that the draft is pushed back, at least on my radar. What is the difference now or the significance of the draft being pushed back to July as opposed to where it was before? So I, I think it's beneficial to the to the kids that are in that draft class, like in the 2022 draft class, because they get another month to show what they can do, whether it's in summer, summer collegiate ball, you know, they have the recent recently developed PBR MLB draft league where you get a lot of these, you know, it's not the top names in the draft, but it's those guys who could go on day three are getting another month to prove what they can do in summer collegiate ball. I think where it hurts a little bit perhaps is the guys for the next draft. So in previous years, you pointed it out, Mike, you would have college players who are in Omaha or in super regionals, the, the, the round before Omaha getting drafted uh, and then you're essentially, you know, the property of a major league team while you're trying to finish out your college team. And I, I, I think even for the the most mature kids, that's that's a little bit of a distraction when you get two million dollar signing bonus waiting for you as soon as you're, as soon as you're ready to take off your college jersey. So I do like the fact that it's a little later in that regard. But what it what used to happen is you would have the draft, you know, right around this time, July June 10th, 10th to 20th, that range, and then boom, the very next week you have ramp you're ramping up for the 2023 the the next year's draft class you have pg national you have uh the collegiate national team getting ready and those things all take place they used to take place right after the the previous draft now it's kind of uh a little awkward the collegiate national team will start playing here in early july um then the draft will take place and then you'll have things like pg national some pbr events to getting getting ready for for next year's class so I think it's impacted how teams have have needed to deploy their scouts in the summer before the draft. Um, for me, as someone who writes and covers this, I like a little bit of a breather between uh, the college season ending gets you a chance to then collect your notes, talk to scouts, and then compile reports and lists and stuff for the draft a month later. I like having that that ramp up time. So for me personally, I like it. I I don't know for sure. What clubs, if if they've gone public to say whether or not they like this new newer system or if they w- would prefer to revert back to the old one? Yeah, I think just from what I've heard, most you know, most clubs don't really like it. Just because, I mean, you have like they'd like to be getting ready for the trade deadline and they can't because they're doing the draft, even though their scouting directors have basically been ready to draft. It seems like for weeks, I would guess. So it's just, I think it's kind of frustrating, but. You know, you you cover the Midwest. Um, who who are some of the best players in the Midwest this year for this draft? So this year is a, it's a little bit of a an atypical year for the Midwest in that high school talent is carrying the Midwest and the college crop is down. Uh, at least as long as I've been doing this, it's traditionally been the opposite. Midwest prep baseball. There's there's a lot of challenges obviously as as they relate to weather and the guys in you know California and Florida at the high school level tend to grab the headlines. But this year. Is a little bit different. So last year there were there were three college first rounders from the Midwest, in Sam Bachman from Miami of Ohio, Jordan Wicks from Kansas State, and uh, Tyler Black from Wright State. And then the Big Ten had you know a few second rounders and, and Spencer Schwellenbach and Stephen Hajar from Michigan and McCade Brown and Sean Burke and Cade Povich were all third rounders. 
this year it's you know like i said we're down at the high at the college level and we're inexplicably up at the at the high school level brock porter out of a right-hander out of orchard lake st mary's in michigan could be the top prep arm off the board andrew duke i'm, I'm gonna butcher his name dukenich out of, out of indiana indianapolis area he was tracking to be a first rounder until recent news came out uh, just this morning that he's informed clubs he's going to vanderbilt there's a kid in my area, a high school kid in my area that I really like, Jacob Miller. Every now and then a Central Ohio kid, I'm from I live in Columbus. Every now and then a Central Ohio kid will come out really well in the showcase circuit uh the month leading up to his senior year and he'll be regarded as a day one draft guy that following year, but then then you go see him in the a cold spring and he's 88 to 91 and can't command anything and you leave saying, "Well, he's going to go to college and we'll see him in two or three years." But the opposite happened when I went to see Jacob Miller. He It was like a 35-degree day. All the colleges around around me had canceled. And I got a tip from a scout that uh, Miller was going was gonna to throw like 30 minutes away from me. So I show up to this, this really rural high school in Ohio, and he's throwing like 92 to 96 heat by these poor, these poor Ohio high school kids who have never seen 85 miles per hour, much less 95. It was his first start of the year. He struck out 11 guys in four innings. He's a Louisville commit. I, I just don't think he's going to get there. For me, he's he's one of the better Midwest high school arms. I'd put him on par with like a Quinn Priester, if you guys remember him, an Illinois prep kid a couple years ago. And then there's a, a couple other guys. Uh, Owen Murphy is an Illinois prep righty. He's a, a two-way guy who also plays third base, but teams prefer him on the mound. He's an athletic athletic guy with low 90s fastball, gets high marks for his curveball. He's a Notre Dame commit. Ike Irish is is Brock Porter's teammate up in Orchard Lake St. Mary's. He's a he's a catcher. He's a he's an Auburn kid. I think he's probably like a, a third round type talent if he's signable. Uh, but again, a good catch and throw catcher. I, I would expect maybe him to go to college. The the track record for for high school catchers in recent drafts has been pretty terrible um, in kind of projecting out how they'll hit at the next level. So, um, but still it, it, a lot of, a lot of guys at the high school level, Noah Schultz, another guy from the Wisconsin area, a, a guy who is, is really boosted his draft stock uh, this spring as, as the stuff kind of tick, ticked upwards. So a good year for high school talent in the Midwest, which is kind of a, kind of atypical. Yeah. So it seems like Miller, is going to go probably top 40, I would think. I mean, there, there's just a I, lot I on think, him. Yeah. yeah, and then I've heard, so the two guys here, so Schultz is actually here. Schultz is Oswego, who, okay. like a lot of people I know have seen, he's like a six foot nine lefty, but he missed a lot of time. They said he had mono, but I mean, it was like five or six weeks. So, you know, it was a little bit nefarious. The, the White Sox are a little bit involved here because I had heard that they had interest in Schultz. They had interest in Dukanich. I mean, Mike Shirley loves Indiana guys. Dukanich is obviously off the board. I feel like Schultz like wants a $3 million price tag. So I think he ends up at Vanderbilt too. Mm -hmm. But the other guy that you mentioned is, is Murphy from here. He he's probably going to sign too. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. Like the, some of the prep arms in this area and how it influences what the white Sox might do. They they've, you know, they've overslotted high school pitchers in the second recently. I just I don't know if they're going to be able to do it this time. It doesn't it doesn't really seem like it. To your point on Schultz, I had heard the same thing about the about the mono and scouts and, and other just Internet prospect evaluators have had a tough time getting in to see him because they brought him back very conservatively, which I this is good. It's good for the kid's future. Um, but like it would be bringing that bringing him back for one inning a week later, two innings, things like that. I actually have my buddy Patrick Ebert, who I work with at, at D1 Baseball, is planning to see him on Monday of this week. So I'll be checking in on his Twitter to see how that has looked. But like Dukanich, he's a, he's a Vanderbilt commit. And Vanderbilt commits, one, they're tough to sign, period. Two, they've lost a few guys that were contributors to the transfer portal. So guys like Dukanich and Schultz, if he ends up there, could be in line for some significant innings right off the bat. So when you go you're talking about a premier educational institution and, and playing time right away. You know, those are appealing things that that will cost a lot of money to buy someone out of. And as we, as we touched on the white Sox don't have a lot of money in this bonus pool. 
Yeah, they really don't, which makes things tough. And I think Schultz and Dukanich are both eligible two years from now, which makes it even tougher. But the one thing about Schultz, like I had heard from some people with the sparks and whatnot, like, you know, if the price tag is three million, like I don't see anybody doing that. But it's crazy that it's like weird that he's pitching, right? I feel like if he was mm-hmm. definitely going to Vandy, he wouldn't be pitching this summer and he is. So maybe maybe he is, you know, still in play um for somebody, which would be interesting. So flipping over to you know, the White Sox strategy, I hinted towards it. We had Carlos Colazzo on a couple of weeks back and he hates when teams do this, but it, it kind of seems like the modern way of thinking that smart teams go. What do you think about the White Sox recent strategy where they've pushed a lot of money into the top few rounds and, you know, you kind of take seniors for $10,000 to accommodate those signings. What do you like about like or dislike about that sort of strategy overall? I would say I dislike it for the most part. I think you want to get as many major leaguers out of your draft class as possible. And when you're taking guys like, who was the guy out of Wabash, Wabash Valley? Addison. Oh yeah. Addison, Addison coffee. I mean, that was in the, in the, yeah. So in the short draft, I mean, they basically gave all of their money to crochet and Jared Kelly, but they did, you know, they did get Bailey Horn cheap in the fifth and they traded him for, um, for Ryan Tapera. So, you know, th- yep. th- that's like a useful, the White Sox have actually drafted some seniors in recent years that they've turned into like the second or third part of like trades, which, so they've actually done an okay job with the guys they've targeted doing it, but yeah, it is, it's different for sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and they should be commended at, and when you can get a guy like that and he's, he's a significant enough value trade piece that you can add, like, even if he's not helping your club, that's where you're, that's what you're looking for. Um, when you're taking underslot guys or seniors, if they can help you out by being a complimentary piece of a trade, that's that's gravy, right? That's that's a, right. a bonus. We talked about them having the third smallest bonus pool, essentially, mm-hmm. right? So, what would you do? And I guess, like, what do, what do you think they're going to do? I mean, it, they could do this again, where it's like, you know, you you go slot in round one, you over slot round two, you got to save some money, and you probably get two more players in there, right? And either three, four or five. And then the rest is kind of like, looks like a punt on paper. Do you, do you think that's coming again? What would you do if you were them with the third smallest bonus pool? So again, just what I would do. And I'm, I'm maybe a little bit biased towards the college college folks, because that's, that's who I cover on a weekend to weekend basis. But their first round slot is about 2.8 million, right? Which is about 45% of their total total bonus pool for the first 10 rounds. So that's a lot of eggs to put in your first round bucket. And I personally wouldn't feel that comfortable drafting a high school bat there um, because I think high school position players are the toughest to project out. Um, there's some that I really, really like, especially at the top, the top 10 overall picks in this draft. But for me, I I would lean towards the safety or proceed safety of a college bat. And plus you got to combine in the variable. Like we all thought the White Sox were in a, in their run of contention to compete here. Uh, It's looking bleak at the major league level right now, but I I still think there's value in adding those guys like a a Garrett Crochet or an Andrew Vaughn that can help you kind of right away in a string of playoff runs. So for me, a guy that would make a lot of sense in the first round is, is Drew Gilbert uh, from Tennessee an outfielder from Tennessee. I joked James with you, a couple of weeks ago that he's like a good version of Adam Eaton and that he's a similar build left-handed hitter. He's an outfielder. Uh, Gilbert played center field with the, the volunteers. He could stick at center field at pro ball. He has a strong enough arm to handle right field if needed. He was a, a two way pitching prospect out of, out of high school. So he has a legit plus arm. Uh, don't know if he'll have enough pop to uh, profile as your traditional right fielder, but He's a guy like plays plays a very fiery competitor, plays with a chip on his shoulder, as does his teammate Jordan Beck, who I think will also be in play right around that that area at the end of the first round. And and guys that I don't think would be over slot, right? I think that's that's the key. But Beck is a, a big prototypical right fielder, big time raw power, like Gilbert and pretty much anything on anyone on Tennessee's team, plays with a lot of swagger. Um Love to be his teammate, hate to play against him. I think Stanford's Brock Jones, another outfielder, kind of kind of fits that role. He started out well last season and and played well over the summer. Looked like a potential top half of the first round pick coming into this year. Slowed out of the gate. And then by the end of the year, he was hot and his numbers looked kind of 
what you thought they would look like. And MLB Pipeline, Callis and Mayo put a, a Jock Peterson comp on him. And I, I kind of like that one. It's He might be a 240 hitter with 30 home runs and a healthy dose of strikeouts, but that's that's not bad in today's Major League Baseball. A pitcher that I like kind of in that range at the end of the first is Justin Campbell out of Oklahoma State, a big projectable 6'7", 220 frame. Uh, I saw him against WVU earlier this year. He was he was 90 to 93, touched a four, um, but held it for, for seven scoreless innings. And the book on him is just that he throws strikes. He, he, he works around the zone consistently. He was able to pull the string on a really good uh, upper 70s curveball with that was thrown with fastball arm speed. I like that he throws it to righties and lefties alike. Uh, and then he has a curveball, which which also can miss bats. So for me, that it's everything you like in a college starter. He's a big, sturdy frame, throws lots of strikes, three pitches um, that he can miss bats with. And then when you talk about moving into the second round, again, I, w- I would still stay the college route. And I, guys I like in that range are slick fielding Oregon shortstop, uh, Josh Kasevich, who I got to look at at the regional, uh, the Louisville regional a couple weeks back and came away just, just super impressed with him on both sides of the ball. I think he's a rare college shortstop who's a lock to stick there in pro ball. And then he's got a simple line drive at the plate what, that I think will play. Dalton Rushing, uh, the catcher from Louisville. I think you guys know that the White Sox have an affinity for taking Louisville products. And then likewise, Louisville seems to do a great job of recruiting the Chicago land area. Now rushing isn't from Chicago. He's from like Tennessee originally, but a big left-handed bat, lots of pop didn't catch a lot last year. Cause they had Henry Davis, the top overall pick um, doing almost all the catching duties, but rushing has a, has a, a good arm. It's a, it's a 55 to 60 grade arm. Uh, the receiving is fringy, but it looked in my opinion, better than I expected in my looks at him this year. Spencer Jones, another outfielder out of Vanderbilt. He was a two-way guy I liked out of high school. He's he's done exclusively been in the outfield and, and developed as a better outfielder than I thought he would. I think he'll be in play in the third-ish round range, maybe second. Chandler Simpson is a guy out of Georgia Tech. He's a middle infielder, slap hitter, won the D, D1 batting title in college baseball, hit, hit in the 400s, um, and then he's, a, he's at least a 70-grade runner. So he's a guy I like. Those are kind of the the routes I would go if I were the White Sox in the first few rounds. But again, I'm biased towards towards college folks, um, but I think they've kind of positioned themselves where that's an area that I would be looking based on the bonus pool and the risk profile that they have. That's a lot of information, <laughs> a lot of names. I'm sure those who are as interested as we are into the draft and those looking to learn about the draft uh, will appreciate all of that. So thank you so much, Burke, for all of it and all your work throughout the years covering the MLB draft and the amateurs. A couple more before we let you go. As you were talking with James as well about some of the throw-in maybe college arms, older college arms like Bailey Horn, thinking about Avery Weems, who was included in the Dane Dunning, uh, Lance Lynn deal. Just an example of how the White Sox have been doing things over the last few years, and including that is Garrett Crochet and his pathway to the major leagues. Drafted him in 2020, debuts in the big leagues without even playing a minor league game. Given the circumstances, 2020 was wild for everybody. And the next year, due to the White Sox' willingness to compete, they needed Crochet in the pen as a high-leverage arm because of the stuff. You know, he goes down with a serious injury, and just the other day, Garrett Crochet mentions to the Chicago media that he's looking to start as he returns. And I wonder if the White Sox are willing to make that commitment because, you know, that was the profile for Garrett Crochet coming out of school. He was planning to be the horse for Tennessee as a junior his draft season, but obviously that didn't come to pass. Do you see a legitimate future as Garrett Crochet in terms of a, a being a starter compared to a reliever? Or do you think this is a little too far gone at this point in his career? It's a, it's a good question. So, and I, I saw that recent quote as well, that he wanted to use kind of this rehab as an opportunity to reset and develop as a starter. I don't think you draft someone 11th overall if you think he's strictly going to be a reliever. You mentioned it, Mike. The stars just kind of aligned in 2020 that he only threw two and a third innings before the shutdown. And then with no minor leagues and the White Sox making a run, like, why not use him if you can? So in hindsight, that 2020 season played a huge role in, in kind of how they develop it, developed him. I think if you're going to move him into a starter, I think that 
it would have been between 2020 and 2021. In hindsight, I, I kind of wish they would have done that because we were talking about a guy who threw what 10 innings of regular season ball. I know they used them in the playoffs in 2020. And then in 2021, you're using him every third day. He, he pitched what 55 games that year in a role that he is not really accustomed to. And again, he missed time in, in 2020 for a sore arm. So I'm not suggesting that his use in 2021 led to TJ. I really have, I have no clue, but now he's 23 years old. And if you're going to convert him to a starter, you have to bring him along so slowly. So what would the end game look like there? We're talking about not much use next year. And then you maybe best case scenario, get what 12 starts in 2024 or like a hundred and 120 total innings. If you're counting postseason. So at this point, I just really don't know. I think you've almost missed your window for when you would develop him as a starter if he's truly going to help the White Sox. I think if you develop him as a starter, we might be talking about how well he performs for you know for the Oakland A's in, in 2026 or something. <laughs> but I, I just don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like the window has passed. Um, but what, what, what Crochet wants to do is important. You've got to take into account how he feels most comfortable. I just think it's going to be a challenge and you may have missed your, your window for that. I'd be interested to see here, like what you guys have to say about this. Cause you've, you've obviously seen him throw and be successful out of the bullpen. Uh, so what, what are your guys' thoughts? Well, so me and Josh Nelson, like always debated this. I was like kind of along with you and the team said they took him because they thought he could be, you know, scouting term, whatever mid rotation starter. Like they took him at 11 cause they thought he could start. They got him. He was throwing 100. They're like, hey, we're winning. Let's throw him in the bullpen, right? So mm -hmm. you're right. Like the transition should have already happened. Like last year, they they used him, you know, in a high leverage role as a left-hander. Like I, I would I would have preferred him starting in Birmingham last year. That That's what I thought he should have been doing. And once they didn't do that, I'm kind of with you. I, I don't really think he has the innings load to ever start at this point, but I think, you know, I think they're going to try. I just, yeah. you know, I think when you're trying to win at the big league level, it's going to be very tough to rely on. You're going to need like seven starters if he's one of them, because you're going to have to skip him all the time and he's going to go five innings. And it's just, yeah, it's really tough. Like a rebuilding team. Sure. It's just going to be tough for him to ever start for a contending White Sox team, in my opinion. But Obvious. I mean, it's it's clear why he wants to start. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense, like for him. And let me just add too, and Burke, I agree wholeheartedly about the transition. If you were going to do it, do it in the summer or in the off season into twenty twenty one. That was it. And I think the highest upside is that crochet with two pitches can be a starter. But if if he's able to work on a third then you have something there. However, the timeline is in question. And it's just the workload in relation to the White Sox trying to win. He's expected to be a major part in the White Sox path to the World Series. And it's just unrealistic to expect him to be a part of the rotation without proper management. I mean, just flat out straight up. So I agree with both of you, James. You, you made the same points, really. Yeah, I mean, maybe ideally he's just one of these like multi-inning weapons, like kind of a la what the Rays do, but that's never happening with this manager. Like it's it's just not. So, you know, maybe he's like a, like a hybrid type guy where like he starts sometimes or he's an opener and he can come out of the bullpen and throw three innings and, and he's not a traditional like, he's not like a loogie, obviously, you know, but I just, I don't know, man, maybe with Ethan Katz, like under a different manager, like that would be possible. But if this stays the way it is, there's there's just like no chance that that happens to me. Like the big picture thing is, it, even if it all goes well, by the time he's built up as a starter after a transition, I don't think it'll be the White Sox reaping that benefit. I think he'll be towards the end of his team controlled years at that point. And, you know, they might get one one, two years out of him as a starter. And then who knows what happens after that? how much should the lack of pitching depth like influence decision-making? So uh, AAA Charlotte's pretty barren right now. And I, and I do think they've had some bright spots. Like Davis Martin really came on this year and looks like a legit big league contributor. Jimmy Lambert's pitching out of the bullpen. There's just like not much pitching depth. You got Sean Burke. There's, there's a couple of recent international guys that they have, but they're, you know, they don't have a ton of pitching depth. So, you know, when you talk about the draft, Mike Shirley might want a high school position player that he loves at 26, right? But like if you have no pitching in your system, should they 
you know, should they consider doing maybe what the angels did a couple of years ago where you just like load up on college arms one year and that's how you try to solve it? I mean, again, I'm biased, but I don't know if this would be the year for that with, with college pitching being down and hurt in, at the, in this year's draft class. But to me, I don't, I don't hate that strategy at all. And I, I don't hate the decision of using him in 2020 when they had to, when that like major league baseball in Chicago was the only game in town. There weren't, there weren't minor league options for him to use. And he did help the team in that pennant run. And he helped in 2021 too. I just think you could have addressed it in between that off season of 2020 and 2021. If you're, if your plan is to use him in 50 games as a left-handed reliever, go, go in free agency and spend $2 million on a guy that can, that can help you in that risk, that regard and treat Garrett Crochet like the asset you said he was when you drafted him and put him in double A and develop him as a starter. Cause that's the best use of, you know, that's the best way to deploy him for the big picture of, of how that this team can contend, not just in 21, but in beyond. So to me, I think that's where I would have done things differently. And, and like I said, now you're talking about a 23 year old and you've stunted that, that year of development, if you're going to develop him as a starter and, it just moves the timetable back. And that's where I think why we're in. It's one of the reasons why they're in this mess that they're in with him and, and other folks. Well, Burke, this is what happens when the general manager in the front office has a plan and then the owner hijacks the operation and hires his friend to manage the team. So this this is, you know, it all it all goes back to that, basically. Thank you for your time today. The last one I have, we have, I'm going to kind of combine it. You were a big Andrew Vaughn fan. You know, I did the draft show with you at the time. You know, thumbs up from both mm-hmm. of us, obviously. Any surprise at the big league success so far? The path was strange. He never really played above high A, so I think, like, the prospect debut was, like, a little bit subdued. Like, people didn't really anticipate it as highly as they would have had he played in the upper minors. So just, like, your thoughts on what Vaughn has been. And then Colson Montgomery's early success as well. Probably going to be a top 100 prospect here soon. What What did you think about just like that pick and then how he's done so far. So for Vaughn, like am I, am I surprised that in his second year in the league, he's, he's has an eight fifty OPS and, and looking like one of the best hitters on the white Sox. No, but am I surprised that he's doing this with basically like no upper minor league experience? Very much. So I think he's played, he played what 30 games of high a and then skip double a and triple a. And so for him to do what he's doing now, I'm, blown away. Like, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember like Gordon Beckham basically switched, uh, skipping, um, double <laughs> a and triple a, but he raked for like, he, he did, he did well on his, his rookie year, but then he struggled every year after that. And I, I was always a little apprehensive of guys learning to fail at the major league level for the first time, but Vaughn held his own last year. I don't know if folks were disappointed in how well he did, um, because it was what, it's like a two forty hitter, um, but for him to do what he did playing out of position, I think it was super encouraging. And I think we're seeing it, it play, play well into this, this year. I hope they don't try to run him out in right field anymore. He's, he's kind of more athletic than what people give him credit for as being a, a right, right first baseman, but he runs okay for a guy of his frame. I just think, you know, his future is definitely it's first base it's DH it's, you can hide him in left field if you need to, but, um, right field is significantly harder to play. So, I, I don't want to see him in right field much, if if at all anymore. I want to see him just focusing on raking because that's that's how he's going to help the White Sox and he's going to turn into a, a really, I think, a, a perennial all star. I think he's a, is a future star. And then Montgomery, yeah, he he was the first high school position player the White Sox took in the first round since Courtney Hawkins, and oof, that that puts a lot of eggs in the basket of can this guy. Um, make up for, for prior misses and gosh, he looks so good so far. Um, really encouraging start 900 OPS at low a already promoted. There's some swing and miss in his game, but it's not troubling. You know, it's, it's a 20% strikeout rate. If you see that really bump up in, in, in high a and double a, there might be some cause for concern, but, uh, right now just, I, I love the line drive stroke. I think he'll grow into more over the fence pop as, as he gets stronger what I really want to watch is his defense at shortstop. I, I assume he'll eventually move to third base, but you want to let him let him go there when he needs to. If if he can let him stick at shortstop as long as he can. So yeah, I'd, I'd be I'd be interested in what you guys have heard about about his defense 
in particular, because that's that's to me the area of focus of where his ultimate position is going to end up. Yeah, we get perspective from those who have seen Montgomery in person, and they always reference the athleticism because of the multi-sport athlete in high school. And you could see the feet moving well with his core to be able to stay balanced and obviously have enough flexibility to make the plays in the hole. He's strong enough to make those plays. So it seems like early on he can stick at shortstop, which would obviously boast his, his profile as a prospect. Burke, we were able to get Avery Weems, Bailey Horn, Courtney Hawkins and Gordon Beckham in on this episode (laughs) of the podcast. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for all the information and all your work. Where can we find your work moving ahead of the draft as it approaches here? Uh, D1 Baseball. And then uh, follow me on Twitter at Burt Granger. Um, uh, Yeah, at Burt Granger. Do you have anything new coming out uh, as we record this podcast that we can look forward to? It's kind of up in the air right now. I've been talking to Nick Falaris, my partner at 2080 Baseball, to see if we're going to put anything on on that website and publish it out. But if, if so, we'll be promoting it on on our Twitter. So I would just follow Burke Granger, B-U-R-K-E-G-R-A-N-G-E-R, all one word on Twitter. Go and do it. If you like this episode, I don't see why you wouldn't. Thanks so much again, Burke, for taking the time. That is Burke Granger of D1 Baseball and 2080 Baseball. My name's Mike Rankin alongside James Fox. A lot of good stuff on this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you like it. Also follow us on Patreon if you'd like to become a member and support this product. You get no ads in your episode on the podcast. So go to SoxMachine.com to sign up for that. Boy, uh, draft season's coming up. we got a lot to discuss moving forward, of course, but this White Sox team is not good. So hopefully by the next time we talk to you, which is next Tuesday, by the way, it'll be a little bit more optimistic. So until Tuesday, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you then.